Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kurt, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. This is Robert from Nostalgic Video and Cars, here to tell you about Bellador's Pizza and Pasta, where the food is fresh, the sauce homemade, and the price is fantastic. They offer Chicago-style stuffed crust pizza, New York-style pizza, calzones, strombolis, pasta entrees, beer one, and great desserts. They even make their bread fresh daily. Hey, they offer catering, and any order over 10 bucks, free delivery. So give them a call at 727-581-5000. Place your order now. They're located at 131 Clearwater Lager Road, near downtown Largo. Or visit their website, belladorspizza.com. Over here, well, like I told Max here, I was trying to get my gun. But where are you doing, Bezavaya? Well, like I told Max, I was trying to cut my way through your wire because I want to get out. Better. You speak German? Jawohl, Herr Oberst. Why are cutters? Jawohl, Herr Oberst. I have had the pleasure of knowing quite a number of British officers since this war. And I flatter myself that we understand one another. You are the first American officer I've met. Hills, isn't it? Captain Hills, actually. 17 escape attempts. 18, sir. Tunnelman, engineer. Flyer. I suppose what's called in the American Army a hotshot pilot. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, you were shot down anyway. So we are both grounded for the duration of the war. Well, you speak for yourself, Colonel. You have other plans. I haven't seen Berlin yet, from the ground or from the air, and I plan on doing both before the war is over. Are all American officers so ill-mannered? About 99%. Then perhaps while you are with us, you will have a chance to learn some. Ten days isolation else. Captain health. Twenty days. Right. Oh, uh, you'll still be here when I get out. Cooler. Hey, help! Hi, this is Nick Mason from Pink Floyd, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Oh, 
Okay, listeners, welcome. You are tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers and Google Tantalk1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studio in sparkling downtown Clearwater on Myrtle Avenue. Uh, don't forget to go to our Facebook page and give us a big uh, like, okay? Um, be sure to check out the website, GolfStreamMotorsports.com. Visit our Stuffs page. Visit our Events page, because there's a lot of stuff going on this week. And, of course, this week is the big, the big events taking place. Actually, starts tomorrow, the 50th anniversary of the Mustang. Probably the number one selling car in America, 1964 and a half, five, and six. I think by the end of 1966, they sold one million Mustangs. The first year, there was a running joke because the car was actually introduced on... Uh, hey, good evening, Cedric. How you doing? Oh, hey. Yeah. Welcome I to for- Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I forgot I was here, too. You're here, too. <laughs> well, let me give you a little history lesson on the Mustang. Okay. Okay, so the Mustang came out uh, in 1964 and a half. It was actually introduced at the World's Fair... I believe in New York. Where was the Wheels Fair in 64? Was it New York, uh, wasn't it? Knoxville? I don't no, know. No, no, no. Anyway, jeez, I should know that. Anyway, and uh, it was on uh, April 17th, 1964. Oh, but well, it was New York in 64. It was New York, okay. Yep. At the Ford Rotunda, because Ford owned a big facility there, and it was called the Rotunda, which I think that eventually burnt down, but I'm not sure. Um, at any rate, so the joke was, I shouldn't say the joke, but there, th- there was a thing um, because McNamara, if you remember who he was, who later became a politician, compliments of the uh, Vietnam War. But we won't go there because that's politics as usual, and we don't talk about politics on this radio show, do we? But anyway, so McNamara was actually, I think, VP of Ford Motor Company. So in 1960, he introduced the, uh, he was a big proponent behind the, the Ford Falcon. And the Falcon was introduced to compete with the onslaught of foreign cars coming from overseas, primarily Germany. Hence the little clip we played a little earlier with Steve McQueen and the Great Escape. But the uh, Falcon was out to uh, combat. You like that pun? Like combat. Okay. Great escape, combat. Okay, we're doing real good here, aren't we? Uh, The Volkswagen. The people's car, yeah? Yeah. Of course, Chevrolet brought out the Corvair, but it had some issues, but it was not a bad little eco car, you know, eco kind of box. And, uh, but anyway, so they did something like 416,000 Falcons were, I believe, sold the first year. So, 417, the, the mantra at the time, when I was reading this here recently, and I read it once before many, many years ago, was 417 on 417. So, the goal was to sell 417,000, which was, I think the Falcon was 416. So, they're trying to sell 417,000 commencing on 417. Okay, which I think they did. I think they realized that uh, that amount within, uh, you know, for really, it was always less than seven months of the year because the production started in March, I guess. Yeah, but anyway... So, by the end of 1966, they sold a million Mustangs. And there was an article about a lady uh, who was a school teacher or a librarian in Chicago who actually purchased the car on 415. So, on tax day uh, in 1964 and a half, this lady bought a little baby blue Mustang, Robin Eggs Blue or something like that. Well, anyway, she still owns that car. So, the lady that purchased the very first Mustang still owns the very first Mustang sold to the public. In 1964. How do you like that bit of trivia? So anyway, so this week, commencing in Charlotte, and all my buddies are going to be there, except for maybe me. I'm not sure. I'm still working on it. I'm not going to be there. You're not going to be there? Okay. That's two of us. Well, I'm still working on it. 
if I can get a ride. But anyway, as everybody's going to be descending on Charlotte Motor Speedway for the big 50th anniversary of the Ford Mustang. And simultaneously, in Arizona, no, not Arizona, Nevada, they're going to be doing an event, I believe, at the Shelby headquarters in uh, Las Vegas. Las Vegas, okay? So that ought to be interesting because the guys from the West Coast, obviously, not all of them, but some of them, many of them will be out here and vice versa. There's a few of them that might be out in Las Vegas, Las Vegas, uh, participating in that 50th anniversary. And then I'm not sure if there's anything going on in Detroit, but I would imagine there's going to be like little satellite parties all over the place commencing the 50th anniversary of the Mustang. And the Mustang truly is, and I'm not saying this just because I'm a Ford guy. Yes, I am a Ford guy. Yeah, you are. I am. I'm biased. No, I'm saying this because it truly was a milestone car, and it is probably the one car, like, every automobile manufacturer has a car that kind of hits the market, that kind of, I don't want to say makes or breaks them, but it kind of distinguishes the the car company, and it becomes an iconic car form, and it's like their legacy. So the Mustang is truly the legacy, one of many, I should say, for Ford Motor Company. So that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And I just happen to have a 1965 Mustang convertible, factory 289, four-barrel, four-speed car, built at the San Jose factory in San Jose, California, probably while I lived there in San Jose back in the 60s. And that car is for sale. So if anybody wants a nice 1965 Mustang convertible project car, it will be on our website a little bit later. So be sure to check out the website, golfstreammotorsports.com. Hey, we got an exciting show for you tonight. Uh, we have a legendary... Guitarist, rock and roller, musician, author, and a car guy coming on our show a little bit later. So we're going to have a really cool interview with this gentleman. Uh, he has been in this band. It was a really cool band back in, formed, and I think the fall of 69. Uh, and you know what? Here it is, five decades later, and they are still rock and rolling. And they've got, they put out albums just about every couple of years. They tour. They do anywhere between 100 to 130 Tour dates a year. That's amazing. And uh, they keep going strong. And they will be here in St. Petersburg on Friday the 18th, appearing at the Ringside Cafe. So I'm not going to give away who the guest is, but you can uh, actually, you can go to our website, GulfstreamMotorsports.com, and it is on our events page. In fact, it's on our homepage. Now, this past weekend in Orlando, they had the Florida Toe Show. In Palm Beach, they had the Bear Jackson Palm Beach Auto Auction. In Bradenton, at the Bradenton Motorsports Park, they had the IHRA Nitro Jam Southern National. And next week, on Friday, is Blast Friday, brought to you by our good friends over at Ruth Eckert Hall. And that's always fun, because it's a downtown party, and they're having some... Usually they have bands there. Well, this weekend, or next weekend, they're going to have Mark Farner with Stormbringer. So, but anyway, you know what, Cedric? I get really, really bad migraines every once in a while. Oh, you're getting that again? Nope, nope, nope. But I got one Friday night. What's that? What happened Friday night? A nasty migraine. I was scheduled to go to either A, the Florida Toe Show, B, Barrett-Jackson, Palm Beach, C, the IHRA Nitro Jam, Southern Nationals. And you know what? Because of my terrible migraine and i you know anybody that's had a migraine knows what it's like uh i, I couldn't i i was home ridden did you, bedridden, did you but, stay home and listen to tan talk no i did not i <laughs> couldn't even make it to the radio nubs but wow. you know what i did do you know what i did do wow. on saturday night i went downtown clearwater with a migraine my camera a clean pair of blue jeans and i went to the mix 
and I watched our very own <laughs> Artie Fletcher, the most notorious stand-up comedian filthy, in the world. Foul, filthy mouth, racist, disgusting, potty mouth comedian. Perform his best to an exploding, overwhelming, just irate crowd of people. <laughs> Sounds sounds pretty crazy. Sounds pretty crazy. But anyway, so Artie did a great job. And, you know, then I, I, I really wanted to hang around for the rest of the party because they were all having a good time over there. But unfortunately, my head started pounding. It's kind of like, you know, it's it's kind of like imagine sticking your head in a vice. Start up here at the top of your head. Then go to your ears. Then go to your jaws. Then go to your neck. And everything above your shoulders. And just stick it in a vice and squeeze it. That's what a migraine's like. And there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. But I did... Managed to make it through an hour. I think Artie did 90 minutes. And, of course, he had another comedian that was there, dude. I think his name was Paul Smith or something like that. It was it Paul Smith? He was pretty funny, too. So, and it, I can't hear Artie. Is he making fun of me again? <laughs> something like that. Okay. <laughs> well, anyway, but, uh, yeah, so, uh, hey, be sure and tune in to the Artie Fletcher Show, promptly following the world-famous Nostalgic Radio and Cars. How are we doing on time there, Sid? Uh, you still got uh, dos dos minutos. Dos minutos. Uh, what are, we got a we got a song on the on. Do we have a turntable today, or do we, we have a we, CD? Are we on? Are, are we a compact disc like we did last no, week? No, we, we brought the turntable back. We, we got, brought the turntable back. Okay, we got rid of the CD player and the and the other thing. Okay, we so but, but 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 it's not a reel to reel though, right? No, 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 it's not a reel. We're doing vinyl tonight. We're doing vinyl. We're doing vinyl. Okay, hey, ladies and gentlemen, we got a really cool song. Oh, this is one of my favorite. Now, this is a band. That I have always liked. Now, this song takes me back to 1971, and actually 69, 69, 71. But anyway, this is when I was a kid growing up in Europe. I used to play pinball, and one of my favorite pinball machines was Aces and Kings. It was a uh, Williams machine. And I, 40 years later, I found that machine. But this is the song that I used to listen to. It's by Deep Purple. It's called Black Knight. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you're listening to Deep Purple. Deep Purple. With the famous Ricky Blackmore. Stick around, it's Nostalgic Radio Cars. We will be right back with our guest.
listeners. This is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kirk at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. This is Robert from Nostalgic Video and Cars, here to tell you about Bellador's Pizza and Pasta, where the food is fresh, the sauce homemade, and the price is fantastic. They offer Chicago-style stuffed crust pizza, New York-style pizza, calzones, strombolis, pasta entrees, beer one, and great desserts. They even make the bread fresh daily. Hey, they offer catering, and any order over 10 bucks, free delivery. So give them a call at 727-581-5000. Place your order now. They're located at 131 Clearwater Lager Road near downtown Largo. Or visit their website, belladorspizza.com. Hi, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. If you like to play golf, Magnolia Valley Golf Club is offering some specials this week. Give them a call up there at 727-847-2342. They have a 9-hole executive course and they have an 18-hole par 72. And they've got great food on the 19th hole. So call my friend Pete at 727-847-2342. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Hi, this is Dave Jenkins with the Pablo Cruz Band. You're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. This gentleman needs no introduction. He's been an influential band for five decades and still going strong. He is the legendary singer, songwriter, author, car collector of the notorious Wishbone Ash Band. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening, Andy Powell. Andy, are you there? Yeah, I am indeed. My pleasure to be here with you. Is notorious a good word for uh, Wishbone Ash? You know, it's funny. It is, actually, because I used to have a company back in the days where so many companies we couldn't keep track of them. My company was called Notorious Productions, so you'll have the money there. I love it. Well, that's coincidental. How about that? <laughs> well, tell us a little bit how you got started in music. You started at an early age playing guitar, from what I understand, correct? Yeah, well, you know, like any... I was born in 50, 1950, so my, my, my progression of mu- in music and development in life coincided with each change of the musical decades that we went through. And, of course, the 50s was rock and roll, you know. We went into, uh, uh, you know, we, we went through the Everly Brothers and later on Chuck Berry, and so I would hear that, and I would hear the Ventures on the radio. And, and in UK, where I grew up, our equivalent of the, of the Ventures was the Shadows. So uh, that was uh, Cliff Richard was uh, the big uh, rock and roll star at the time. And basically, we would uh, play instrumental music. And so when I was about 11, I started playing these uh, Instrumental rock, really, you know, um, you know, Link Ray, The Ventures, The Shadows, that kind of stuff. And that's how I got my tone together, and that's how I started playing. And I couldn't afford a, an instrument back in those days. None of us neighborhood kids could. So we just started, you know, we, we figured out we could make our own. So we would build our own guitars. And that was a big thing for me, right through my teens, building guitars. Well, and, it, and, you know, as a guitar player, it was awesome because if you built your instrument, um, you really knew how that thing worked. And um, by the time I built my third instrument, I was getting pretty good at it, you know? 
Now, when you did that, I mean, what did you guys have for like a basis? I mean, did you take somebody else's guitar apart and uh, kind of study it and then kind of build it, or did you kind of just kind of wing it? No, we wing, we, we kind of winged it. We had, uh, you know, some of our parents, uh, my, like my dad, did done sort of metal work and stuff because we weren't really competent to do that. But we would like take the bus up to London. I think at that time in uh, in London they had like maybe one Stratocaster up there. I remember when they imported it, it was like and every anyone who was you know interested. I mean, this was like something from the future. You know, if you saw a Fender Stratocaster in a store, we would just stand there. We'd take take visual measurements. We'd try and get as clean as much as we could from that thing. It was like looking from out of space. A <laughs> Fender Stratocaster at the time was such a futuristic thing, and it, it, it was an amazing instrument because even the principles that went into building that guitar that Leo Fender invented, they're still in existence today. So nothing has really progressed that far from those early uh, mid-50s guitars and early 50s guitars. So, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, um, we we just uh, experiment until we got it right and we try to get the principles going and then, you know, I built a copy of a Les Paul. I used to call it the Les Powell. That's my surname, (laughs) Andy Powell. Okay. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it was great fun and, you know, it was like an idyllic time growing up in the (laughs) fish because, uh, you know, it it was naive and it was fresh and, you know, and we were... You know, we were eager for anything. We, you know, don't forget, growing up in England, um, it was post-war. I mean, you know, my parents, their house got bombed in the east end of London, and uh, everything was grey and grim, and we were on rations even when I was a kid. We we didn't have enough food, so anything from America, we just drank it up, you know. I mean, Technicolor, movies, you know, TV shows, you know, <laughs> it was just amazing. And, like, you know, it was the same for every kid in England. I mean, when, when Bill Haley... And uh, Buddy Holly threw them played in, in the UK. They were riots everywhere. People just wanted to get some of that. That American youthful freshness that, you know, that forward thinking that we could use a bit of that today, right? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> now, the music that influenced you when you were younger, was it more bluesy? Was it American rock and roll, or what was it? Well, it was a mixture. You know, my dad turned me onto a, a French gypsy guitar player, a jazz player by the name of Django Reinhardt. So... I had this kind of uh, gypsy jazz thing in the back of my mind. And then I also was listening to Chuck Berry. And then a little bit later in my mid-teens, I, I discovered Albert King. And Albert King played the Flying B, And I just saw that instrument. I thought, oh, my God, that is, that, is like, that is truly amazing. And his tone and his songwriting and everything really got to me. So then I started to dig around in the blues a little bit deeper. And then I would get into uh, Blind Blake and... And people like that. And then, you know, then I started to get, I went through a whole phase of English folk and um, used to listen to some of the folk folk influence bands and uh, some of the Californian folk rock bands I really liked. Anything that was kind of folky. And, I, you know, I started to get into song structure and, um, and, and, and yes, just became a huge fan of songs, guitar playing, music, popular music. It was just a great time. And, you know, the way we would get access to that was to go around uh, the festival scene, which was just starting about mid-60s, 66, 67. We had festivals in the UK. There were jazz and blues festivals. And a lot of it, the uh, American uh, blues artists would come over. And actually, Howlin' Wolf did an album in London. And, uh, you know, a lot of the black players, the old guys from, uh, you know, the Delta Blues and stuff, they were uh, Sonny Terry, Brandy McGee, those people. It was amazing, you know. So um, you could see there was a, a great uh, movement um, in Britain, and we, we called it the British Blues Boom. And out of that came bands like the Yardbirds, uh, Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac, John Mayles Blues Band. These bands were like iconic, you know. They really they pushed the thing forward, and some of them actually made it over to the states. And then 
we came, you know, Wishbone Edge came along really on the coattails of that blues boom, which happened in the mid-60s. We came along in like 69, and that's when things really started to explode, and bands were just developing their own sound, you know. They were taking the blues a bit further. They were they were becoming experimental. Nowadays, we call the bands like us back in the day progressive rock bands. We didn't call ourselves that in those days. We just got out there and played our thing, you know. But our thing really was we decided that instead of having just one lead player, we'd have two, and we would uh, we developed this twin lead guitar sound. So we would use the guitars to punctuate the music rather like a horn section would be doing. And um, in fact, uh, that was a big, powerful influence for me because I was I had been playing in my scenes in um, what we called them in England, soul bands. You'd call them R&B acts. Um, uh, basically, uh, any band that featured a Hammond organ and a, bra- a horn section or brass section. And, uh, yeah, we would do covers of things like, you know, Hamla songs, Stax, Motown, um, you know, anything from Muscle Shoals, you know, anything, Wilson Pickett, Otis Redding. We, we love that kind of music, you know, so we would emulate that. And it was really, you know, taking the um, the idea of a horn section and, and really making it, um, doing the same thing with guitars. That was really the essence of how we formed our, our uh, sound. Would it be fair to say that a lot of the British bands, like you mentioned the Yardbirds um, and, and your band and stuff and Clapton and Beck and all those guys, you know, a lot of those guys were really, really, truly influenced by the blues. Would you say that the British rock bands were more influenced by blues artists than American rock and roll bands at the time? Would that be fair to say? I think, I think we took popular music maybe a little more studiously, more seriously. You, you, you were a kind of a uh, student of the blues, you know? I mean, it was like... Um, you know, it was uh, it was some rare kind of exotic thing to kind of get this information, and you, you it was it was on the jungle telephone. You wouldn't really hear so much on the radio. It was um, if you lived in a port city, like for example, the Beatles came from Liverpool. You know, these American records would come in on the ships with the merchant seamen, and they would uh, get distributed amongst the, the musical aficionados in those cities, and they like London, Liverpool. And then they would spread out. And it, it, it was really the students, the art students and so forth, that really hooked onto that. And I think in many ways, yeah, you're right. We were more serious. I think in America, you guys perhaps just took it for granted that, you know, you could hear blues, especially if you lived in the South, you'd hear it on the radio, and it would be no problem. You know, you'd take it as part of the musical backdrop. For us, it was a bit more exotic. It was a rebellion. Okay. It was an opportunity to rebel against the state old British establishment, <laughs> which was kind of like um, anti-youth movement. Did you take? Did you have formal like musical instructions, or did you kind? Are you kind of self-taught? I'm completely self-taught. I mean, uh, as I say, you know, I built my guitars. I listened. I learned by ear. I had I developed a phenomenal musical ear, and uh, I could, you know, started with being able to whistle any tune, and then being able to just emulate any any riff or any any musical idea tonal things um just by ear and i still do it that way you know i mean i did later on i, I dabbled a little bit with uh trying to check out some theory but honestly mostly i just was impatient with it <laughs> i just wanted to get on with it you know when you um as the story goes when uh, there was an ad in uh, a, a publication called melody maker i believe and yeah you uh, you responded to that ad and to this band that was still in its infancy and still didn't have a name yet. And I guess what? Two experienced lead guitarists showed up and tell us that story, how that, uh, how the whole thing with Wishbone Ash, the, the twin lead thing all came about. 
Yeah, well, the, the, the Melody Maker you mentioned, that was like a jazz blues magazine. Uh, musicians would really li- rely on that for work. And uh, you're right, the two uh, founding members, I mean, the band was actually formed in London completely, but they, these two guys, the, the rhythm section came up from uh, the West Country, we call it, in, in Britain, which is Devon. And they came up to London, and the crucial thing was they met a gentleman by the name of Miles Copeland, who became our manager. And yeah, they had uh, auditioned keyboard players and guitar players. The idea of a twin lead band hadn't really caught on yet at that point. And then I came along and sat in with the guys, and we didn't have a name yet. We weren't really a band. And then uh, we tried a couple of things together. I'd actually been in a twin lead guitar band before that, a fledgling outfit. And uh, we tried a few ideas together, and the idea suddenly came to us that, hey, you know what, we could work something here. And I remember Ted Turner was my partner in the band. He and I, we wrote this song called Blind Eye, which was exactly as I described to you earlier. It was a nice, tight little blues number, but punctuated with these staccato blues riffs, which were played in harmony using the two guitars. And that, uh, we were like, wow, this is sound. We can develop this. So at that point, the four of us decided to keep that lineup. And then we started to hunt around for a name. And then, uh, you know, and then with, with the, uh, the impetus of the manager, who was actually American, and that was another crucial component. Um, Miles was an, um, an American, expatriate American living in, he lived in Beirut. His father had helped form CIA back in the day. And uh, he was a real international character. And we, we just got going. And we, we actually are one of the few English bands that signed directly with uh, MCA Universal. Uh, it was called Decker in those days. But we signed directly in that, with the label in L.A. as opposed to the London branch of that. So we became, we had this kind of international mindset. And most importantly, as a band, we had a plan. And our plan was play the circuit in England for a couple of years, Scotland, Wales jump over to Germany, France, and then uh, to try and get um, to the U.S., really. That was that was Nirvana, really. Um, oh, the wind's blowing up here. <laughs> to get inside. I'm out standing outside at the moment. Um, you know, the, the key was to get over to America and start um, getting on the circuit there. So that's what we did, and a lot of bands like us had the same ideas, you know. They may have been signed with British labels. Um, but for us, it was... It was heady days because we're talking, you know, Fillmore West, Fillmore East, playing all these uh, stoner venues that were happening in in the U.S. and um, just really getting on the um, getting on the trail of uh, stadium rock. Uh, it was in its infancy, really. And the, the first band that we toured with in America was the Who, and the Who had been spreading the boards over for a number of years by that time. Started out as a pop band, but they started to develop into a serious stadium act. So the first show that we played with them was opening to 30,000 people. And so it was completely mind-blowing for us. We'd never done anything like that. We played an audience that big, that large. So, uh, you know, that was, uh, that, was, that was Welcome to America. Where did the name Wishbone Ash originate? Well, we had a couple of lists. We were all trying to come up with names. But a big part of our creed at the time was positivity. So wishbone, you know, the, the wishbone is the, the bone that you take from a chicken or turkey or whatever, and you, mm-hmm. you wish on it, that, that wishbone-shaped bone, and you, you know, that had a positivity about it. But then we also wanted that kind of yin-yang thing. So ash is almost like a, that's a feeling of things passing and um, wistfulness and autumn. And you know, so, that you know, those two words were on two different lists. And we just came up with the idea of putting those two those two names together. We wanted a name that wouldn't tie us down musically as well. So 
uh, Wishbone Ash had a yin-yang flavor to it. It was like positive and negative. And um, we just liked the sound of it, you know, Wishbone Ash. And uh, it stuck, and, and, and it, you know, people latched onto it really quickly. They loved it. Your early music was mostly instrumental, and your songs were generally long. So yes. tell tell us a little bit of how how that concept came about, and it, it's kind of like it's almost as if you're like a jam band, you know. I mean, you know, a couple of rockers you're get together. You're absolutely right. Yeah, so, I mean, I listen to jam bands now, and I uh, I think, my God, that's just the way we were back in the day. I mean, we were getting our chops together, so we were playing around the clubs, and we didn't always have a full set of numbers, so we would extend songs, you know, just to keep playing. And um, you know, we. Uh, we weren't afraid to improvise. We were cocky enough and confident enough on our instruments to be able to do that. And, uh, you know, we, we would come over here. And then don't forget, there was also the heyday of FM radio. And that was a whole new format in American radio, which meant that um, there were, most of the channels and stations were run by young DJs who weren't afraid to play long cuts. You know, there were, it was the end of the three-minute single format, in a way. I mean, they still were... Uh, singles, but the uh, the whole concept became much more. You sit down and you get into music, you know. And uh, LPs were, became the thing. Singles were dying out. Long playing records. So all of these things came together. And then, of course, you know the stadium rock thing. Um, people just love to hear players jamming out, and as uh, they still do today. And we rode that wave. We rode that wave. And uh, one of the first songs we ever wrote is a song called Phoenix. And um, I think that song actually later became the influence, the inspiration for Leonard Skinner, who toured with us at the time, for their song, Free Bird. Interesting, you've got two songs about birds, birds. in a way, mm-hmm. a phoenix and a free bird. And if you listen to both songs, they've got the same format, same dueling guitars, and uh, we would come down, we would play the South. And people sometimes thought we were a solid band until they caught on, you know, and they got they heard the English influences a little bit more. And um, I think, I truly think we influenced quite a few bands at the time, to be honest. But certainly Stan Lizzie, who were another well-known, that was an Irish twin league guitar band. They did very well in the singles charts. But always at the core of it was musicianship, and it still is today. When you were traveling in the United States, did you, whether you were in the North, the South, the East, or the West, what was your fan base like? I mean, were you more accepted in one part of the region, the U.S. region, than others? I think we always did very well in the South. Okay. We did very well in the key cities like New York and L.A. Not Maybe not L.A. so much, but and we did really well in the Midwest. The Midwest was probably the strongest of all. Um, but certainly the South embraced us because of the guitar thing. Um, Southern fans love guitar playing. And so we started to get like um, great collections of vintage guitars and we'd take these guitars out on the road and people would see these things, you know, long forgotten American instruments like Flying V and uh, vintage Les Pauls and, you know, we, we work a lot with the guitar dealers and we really expose people to you know, what guitar could be really like in a stadium aesthetic. And then, you know, we, we gradually, our music became more suited to bigger venues. And um, by the time we made our third album, August, we were producing this quite grandiose music that had big musical themes, epic lyrics, and could definitely inspire people in a, in a big a big room, a big hall, even, a, you know, even an arena. So, you know... Um, Ironically, at that time, I mean, we had so many American bands. We were opening for some interesting bands, and some interesting bands were opening for us. I mean, Aerosmith opened for us. Stevie Top opened for us. 
Kiss even opened for us. And then get this, Bruce Springsteen, the boss, opened for Wishbone Ash in the Midwest. I remember, I remember seeing Bruce thinking, oh, that's a nice little bar band. <laughs> 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 and it was, it, was, it was a cool time for music because there were no rules, you know? People didn't put you in, in uh, it didn't pigeonhole you with labels in those days. Did you like your venues back in those days? So you talked about you know playing for crowds like around twenty, thirty thousand people, and, and and so on. So what was one of the largest venues you played back in the day? I think we played a festival up in the Seattle region. It was called the uh, what was it called? Bastrop River Festival, I think. And that was uh, must have been I don't know eighty thousand or something. Huge. Um, and we played a lot of the big festivals in Europe. Um, we played on bills with. Uh, Bob Marley, and he played with, um, oh, God, Stephen Stills over for us, Lou Reed. Really? He did uh, huge festival tours of Europe and, uh, and the States. So, yeah, there were some big venues, definitely. Back in the day, if, how would you compare, let's say, like the European fans to the American fans when you would play? Let's say, let's, let's say. I, you- think, I think the European fans were <laughs> perhaps a little bit more studied bit more reserved they certainly were very reserved in japan we would go out there they were very not at all like they are now not as excitable everything was kind of restrained um when we came to the u.s we we sensed an amazing feeling of freedom um people like to get physically involved in the audience and dance and just uh just have a real party atmosphere and uh we loved that of course you know we, we hadn't really experienced so much of that and, um, you know, everything was very loose and laid back in America. And um, it was a different time, different time. The, the, when you play venues today, and they're, they're probably not as large, does it, does it, uh, does it, did the, did, how are the fans today compared to the fans back in the day? Well, you know, our fan, our fan community has grown with us. I mean, they're no, no longer in their 20s. Some of them in their 40s, 50s, 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, we do also have a pretty good contingent, more so in Europe, uh, with younger fans. Uh, one of the big problems in America, if you start playing clubs and small theaters, is often there's a, an age restriction, which I think is so sad mm-hmm. uh, because of the alcohol and all the rest of it. Um, but certainly we get uh, parents bring their, their kids along. Um, we have uh, whole families will come and join. We, we, we uh, really nurture our fan base. We have uh, fan conventions. Uh, we've had them in uh, Florida, we've had them in Germany, we've had them in, uh, we have a lot in the UK. And at those kind of events, you'll, you'll have a, a complete, almost like a, a deadhead thing, really. It's, it's almost a family affair, which we really like. So you're saying that the Wishbone Ash followers are kind of like the deadheads, like the Grateful Dead, uh, kind of like a cult? In some ways. Band? I mean, we have fans where they'll follow us from country to country. I mean, we, we have fans whose children have married fans, children from, uh, you know, like Scot- a, Sc- a Scottish family will hook up with a family from Arizona or night. You know, they, they, their kids get married and, uh, you know, we will um, we will kind of just endorse that whole thing. And the, and the common factor is um, it really is uh, it's the band and it's music. Now, speaking of which, you're, you're currently touring again and you seem to do, I've kind of read up on you a little bit, you do a lot of tours and I think you, what, average somewhere between 120 and 150 shows a yeah. year? Does that sound about right? Yeah, we are, we, we're definitely on the road. We, uh, we slip effortlessly from, uh, you know, continent and I keep a complete rig, complete duplicate sets of the gear on different uh, territories and we, um, 
you know, we, we just we just do our thing. We have uh, an amazing team of supporters, and we just, you know, we'll we'll fly across the Atlantic and we'll just pick up right where we left off, and it, yeah, that's how it goes. No problem. The other thing I think that's really fascinating about your band is, you know, you're the the this the one consistent member of Wishbone Ash, and you've managed to. Pre- Perpetuate through passion, okay, for the for the for yeah. the name for for the band. But every two years, you seem to come out, or every couple of years, you seem to come out with a new album. I mean, that's remarkable. Well, the thing is, it is remarkable. But I couldn't do it if I didn't feel it was a work in progress. I mean, I'm very proud of our former work, but I also know we have to bring people along and we have to feed the beast. I mean, we have to feed ourselves. We have to stimulate ourselves with fresh music. You know, we have to stimulate our fans and give them, uh, you know continually uh, new music to get into you know so um it's uh i i i really am not into just resting on our laurels and just uh, chilling out I, I mean some bands do that they just trot out the same old singles they had the hits in their head in the seven years and they like they become almost like a tribute to themselves i mean we are uh, we're kind of an evolving entity and I, I i passion you just use that word I mean, that's a really big part of it all. you got to have that passion. Your latest album, uh, Blue Horizon, there's a couple of really good songs on there. One that I like, I like uh, Tally Ho. I think it's an excellent song. Uh, Way Down Thank South, you. I think it's really good. The title track. Now, w- what inspires you? What, what helps you keep your music fresh? Just like you mentioned. I mean, it's... it's and Well, and, it's a self-perpetuating thing. I mean, it's kind of what you were just talking about. I mean, you know, if you start traveling and you start... Um, really traveling with your eyes open and you see and drink in the experiences, you become kind of a, a philosopher, really, of life. And you you use, you channel these experiences, these travel experiences, back into the band's music. And you really are living life. I mean, you know, to be a musician, to be this free, is a, um, it's kind of a privilege, you know, and I never take it for granted. And, I mean, I've been at this uh, business and this uh, music thing for many many years now and i find that it just feeds me with everything i need and if i if i'm traveling through different countries and cultures i'm keeping my eyes and ears open i'm picking up life references inspirations sounds music little you know just just traits character traits from the different people we meet and uh, i channel it all back into the music i think we all do and so uh, you know we never fight the whole travel thing we're right where we need to be at any given time we you know we're very very comfortable in that in that sense You've done somewhere between 25 and 30 albums. I mean, that's a lot of songs over the last, yeah. really, four or five decades. Yeah. When you go on stage, yeah. how do you determine which songs you're going to play? Is it demographics? Is it... Well, uh, we go through phases. Like, uh, currently, at the moment, we're, we're uh, featuring a couple of vintage albums within our set. We'll play an entire album. Like, we had a big live album back in the 70s called Live Days. We'll play that entire album live for people, mm-hmm. for the nostalgic thing. We'll play the Argus album in its entirety. And then we'll slip in the new songs, you know, and we'll wean them onto that. And we'll get them, uh, we'll get the, get the folks into the, some of the uh, newer catalog by playing some of the older stuff. So we use, we use every trick we can, really, just to kind of nurture our audience and to give them, you know, musical ear candy, really, just to kind of, we, you know, we're, we're, we're working now, so we're changing our set all the time. We evolve. We have to keep it interesting for ourselves. I mean, getting back to that jam band thing, it's the same mentality as a jam band. Exactly. When you, like your first three albums, the first album was Wishbone Ash, the second one was Pilgrim Bridge, Pilgrim, Pilgrim, 
Pilgrimage. Pilgrimage. And, this, and the third one was Argus. And actually, your very first album, the one song that I always thought was cool, one of my favorites, is uh, Air of My Ways. And, and that's oh, a fairly right. long song. And do you play that song very often? We do, yeah, from time to time. And uh, we sometimes augment the band with fiddle and accordion. And we'll even do it as an, as an acoustic track. So it's almost like a kind of a Celtic folk rock track. We'll mm-hmm. do it that way, you know? Your your band members now. You've got uh, you, your drummer's fairly young. The other two gentlemen that you have, your bass player and your other lead guitarist, are a little bit older. They're kind of maybe within a generation or two of you. This, this, yeah, yeah. Do you? Do they? What? What? When you first approached them to play in Wishbone Ash, what? How did they respond? How did they react? Well, it's kind of lucky, really, because I mean, these guys are kind of musicologists in their own right. They know the history of music. They knew our band. They know the music. It was quite effortless for my co-guitar player, for example, to play our songs because he was listening to it when he was younger. And, um, you know, so it was a natural thing. You know, I picked these guys because they had that awareness of our sound and our music. And then, you know, the bonus, the, 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 the cream on the on the coffee, really, was when we started writing songs together. And, um, you know, Muddy Manon, and the, my co-guitar player, he's from Finland, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he grew up listening to American and British rock music, and he's got the entire... He's such a musicologist. He knows popular music inside out. And a fantastic player. And when we started writing together, it was like, you know, one hand shaking the other. It was brilliant. And, um, you know, back in those days, he didn't speak English so well. He speaks perfect English now. But, he, um, you know, we would just communicate via music. And Bob Ski, our bass player, is just such a musical guy. He's been in the band for 17 years. So... These guys, it's not like they're just fresh off the uh, off the boat. <laughs> They've been with me for many years, and uh, we have a, a real rapport, both as people and as uh, musicians. Take us through the process a little bit. When you write a song, do you come up with the melody first or the lyrics first? Or It can be either. Okay. It really can be either. I mean, you know, it can be a phrase, it can be a chorus. Uh, it can be a, a, an entire lyric. I mean, the song Way Down South came together almost, as, which you mentioned from Blue Horizon, that mm-hmm. came together as one entity, really. Some of the best songs are written very quickly. Um, the arrangements can take longer. But, you know, I'll keep a notebook with me if, I'm, if I come up with, uh, I hear an interesting phrase on the radio or from a newspaper, I'll, I'll write it down. I'm always looking for inspiration lyrically um, because I'm doing the singing and I'm always, like, thinking about the message of the song uh, more so now than I used to when I was more, more of a pure guitar player, not of singing so much. And, um, yeah, so it can come from many different angles, to be honest. The, 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 the latest album, Blue Horizon, it's kind of cool because, you know, typically when a, when a group does a, sings a song, you can always tell if you listen the band because you can spot it right away and you can, there's very similarity, a lot of similarities in the song. But that particular album, Blue Horizon, is a mixture of kind of like rock, blues, rock, pop, progressive. I mean, you've got a lot of different styles of music in your songs, and that's what makes it kind of interesting, and it, and it keeps it fresh, right? It does keep it fresh, and, um, you know, I'm very mindful now. I mean, the, I think the concept of the album has kind of waned a little bit. Um, I think people are spoiled for choice, you know, I think with, with the downloading thing. So I think to come up with a collection of songs, which is a record of where we're at the moment, that is eclectic and different. It's kind of what people are looking for, you know. People have shorter attention spans now than they used to. Um, it's kind of a good thing and a bad thing. And I think that, you know, if you can kind of keep hitting them with, like, new sounds, different directions, you can change course in the middle of an album. I think that's kind of cool. I think that's what people want. They want to be juiced up. They want to be stimulated with the uh, different different tracks. And uh, we were, uh, we're less afraid to do that now than what we perhaps would have been back in the day. 
And um, that's, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a few different styles. We dip into, like, jazz rock. We dip into Celt rock. We dip into, you know, out-and-out country. We're not afraid to do that. And, um, you know, you can pull, say, two or three tracks off the album. Oh, that's a similar direction. And then it'll, it'll go at a 90-degree angle and change, you know. So, you know, it's... Um, it's it's just really uh, it's a quite a wonderful time at the moment to be making music because I think people are very open minded. Songs. Is there any particular song that you like that you sung over the years that you really like to sing over and over and over, or is that kind of a uh, I like, complicated I like question? Out of my ways, but I mean, we play the song Phoenix on stage pretty much every night. Uh-huh. Um, that thing mutates and becomes something different every night. Okay. Um, I do like the song uh, Sometime World. We play that live. I love that song, even though it's 40 years old now, you know. Um, I don't have a problem playing the old songs because I can always bring something fresh. And being a guitar player, there's plenty of room to uh, improvise and play around with those songs, you know. Well, that was, like my, that. that was my next question. Do you try to keep the songs as original as possible? Because if I'm sitting there and I'm rocking back and forth, I'm singing the song and I'm, you know, wor- I'm mouthing the words and stuff, I'm used to hearing in a certain way. Do you change your songs a little bit, the originals? We do, yeah. I mean, mostly in the guitar solo area. But, um, okay. yeah, we're not afraid to stick in, uh, you know, some different uh, references into a song, you know, and uh, keep it fresh. We'll 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 uh, add some little riffs and things develop in their own way. Actually, you, you almost can't control it. Musical instruments. You're well known for using a uh, Gibson Flying V. So, right. tell us a little bit about some of the other instruments and why that particular one. Well, back in the day, in the, in the uh, early seventies, the Flying V was uh, was available from Gibson, but no one picked up on it. I think it was almost too radical a looking guitar. And uh, a couple of them came available in London. They didn't, they'd been uh, sitting in packing cases for six years. I found mine, and um, I just started playing this thing. I thought, this is actually a really great sounding guitar. And um, as, as I mentioned earlier, Albert King, the blues player, was using Flying V. Now, that's a kind of a cool reference. So, you know, I'll stick with this. Do you? And, um, that, sorry. No, I was going to say, do you have your guitars when you, do you have them modified? I mean, you do like two pickups, yeah. three pickups? and Oh, yeah, I mean, I do. I uh, These days, I mean, I've had custom guitars built for me. I'm very fortunate. I can pay this out somebody to make me guitars. And I, my thing at the moment is I, I use, uh, I have guitars which are electric guitars, but they also have um, what we call piezo pickups on them as well. So I can blend in acoustic guitar sounds with the electric guitar sounds. And, um, you know, I'm using Fender guitars, Gibson guitars, these custom-made guitars. I mean, I'm, I'm a sound freak, so I'm always looking for, the, you know, um, fresh sounds and, you know, interesting uh, interesting composite sounds out of the guitar. You know, I mean, I'm uh, constantly experimenting. I mean, on the last album, Blue Horizon, I must have used 12 different guitars for the different sounds and so forth they produce. The uh, you, we talked earlier about strats because you were impressed with a strat when you were a kid. Um, do you use a strat yeah. very often? I I do. Yeah, more in the studio than on stage. Okay. Um, but I uh, yeah, that was such a radical guitar back in the day. It was so, I think the, the number of patents and the and uh, strat something like eight or ten. I mean, so many things. I mean, they're, they're still a fabulous instrument. And uh, you know, I find you can do an awful lot with a Fender guitar. Um, somewhere I was reading that when you do your albums, that you're kind of into recording a lot of your albums live now as opposed to studio recordings. Shed some uh, thought on that. Well, you know, we always want the actual track, the the basic track in the, in the studio to be as live sounding as possible. 
And so, you know, always the basic rhythm track is cut live. Mm-hmm. And um, and then we may overdub and we may add to it, you know, um, in post-production. But the, court, the, the music has to have soul. It has to have life. And it has to have, um, you know, kind of a... a Human thing. I mean, a lot of a lot of rec- recording these days is done on machines, by machines, and we certainly use the technology, uh, but more so in post production than we do when we're actually laying down the music. We want the stuff to sound as organic as possible right from the get go. Well, that makes sense too, because then you get a little bit of the stage background, the audience, yep. and all that stuff. Do you leave exactly. that in there, or do you edit that out? Oh no, we don't cut it in front of an audience, but we'll cut it oh. live in the studio. Oh, okay. Although we've done many live albums, I mean, the band is hugely known for its live albums. Okay. Um, but so yeah, we. But I'm I'm saying really, when we're in the studio, we're cutting this this music live in real time. You know. Okay. Which a lot of bands don't do anymore. <laughs> Believe it or not. What do they do? They kind of just do like one guy will play the guitar, one guy will take uh, the other instruments, and yeah, then they mix the it together. Yeah, may, may lay down a guitar track one day, then they'll take it to another studio, and then they'll put a drummer on there, and they'll put a bass player on in some other studio a month later, and they build they build it up like that. And the listener will have a hard time knowing that. Yeah, no, it sounds you better. You really do know if you know music, you can you can hear it, and you can you can actually discern it. Absolutely. Andy, if you hadn't been a musician, what else would you have done with your life? What, have, what else would you have done in your career? I would probably be some kind of adventure traveler. I would definitely be a traveler. Okay. I, when I was a kid, uh, my mother always said I would look after over the garden fence all the time. I want to be out in the neighborhood. I want to be like traveling. And when I was like 17, I, I got on a you know, land road with a bunch of guys from we Morocco, you know, and uh, I once been a, an adventurer. I probably might be a sailor or I might be a travel agent or I don't know, but I would probably uh, be traveling and I, I just uh, drink up different cultures. I love that. So I'd be some kind of adventurer, I think. I was reading someplace where when you when you perform, I mean, you travel to India, you travel to China, uh, China yeah. I believe, Russia, the Eastern Bloc. I mean, so there's your traveling for you, and is is that oh, inspirational yeah. to you as well in your songwriting and I stuff? I mean, we took, we were one of the few bands that toured India three times. I mean, um, you know, we played the Soviet Union before uh, the war came down, before Perestroika, before Glasnost. We played uh, East Germany when there was uh, Stasi, secret police walking around. We've been... Uh, Brazil, you know, we've been uh, South America, we've uh, played Japan many times, six times I think. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a massive thing, you know, the thing that music and rock and roll in particular can just unite people in that way. Yeah, music doesn't really discriminate, does it? It doesn't, no. It absolutely does not. You know what? I uh, Talking to you a little earlier, I understand you're also a car enthusiast, so tell us a little bit about your cars. Let's change the subject for a second. <laughs> Well, all the band loves cars. I mean, we um, we uh, we all run mostly British sports cars, Jaguar and so forth, and MGs and um, nothing too exotic, but like uh, fun cars, you know, vintage mm-hmm. cars. And I, I, my passion is Morgan, uh, which uh, I got the passion from my uncle who used to have an old three wheel Morgan racer back in the day. When I was a kid, I see this thing and oh my god, there's a D twin engine in it and. Uh, and then I, started, I got a four-cylinder model, and I, I made a little bit of money. And then, then I started to collect the the, uh, the V8 models. And, um, you know, I've taken them on racetracks. And, uh, you know, I love these cars because they're built on a, on a metal chassis, but the, the superstructure is actually made of wood. And they're, they're made, I made in Britain in Malvern, Lincolnshire. 
links. And they, so basically, they are uh, they are on absolutely traditional methods that they used way back in the 30s. So uh, they just got modern engines in them these days, but they are made by craftsmen, and um, they're such a fun car. And uh, you can build them, strip them down, repair them. Um, they're fuel efficient. They're... Uh, I mean, it really, it's just like the guitars I play. I mean, it's a basic machine that does everything you want. It's from A to B speedily, and, and they're very much a driver's car and a lot of fun, you know. Are you mechanical? Not especially. I can be. Um, I don't actually have the time to do it. I, other people help me, but I, I certainly, uh, my dad was an engineer, and I certainly appreciate the mechanic. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a great fan of a, a beautifully... Uh, produced engine or um you know something that works very simply and very effectively i I love it okay now you're touring in florida and let's see from what i understand i think you're going to be in orlando tomorrow correct i am yes that's correct and then uh, where are you playing in orlando oh we're playing at a place called the plaza the plaza okay and then this friday you're going to be here in our own little backyard you're going to be here in downtown st petersburg at the ringside cafe yeah you know have music we'll travel um (laughs) yeah we're, we're happy to be there yeah Super, super. Well, we're looking forward to it. Well, Andy, I want to thank you very much for taking a few minutes. We'd love to have you on again sometime. And so now you're touring all across the United States. Does the tour just begin here in Florida? Is that where it started? Yeah, yeah. We've just been touring in France. We, okay. we came into Miami last night. We're uh, we're actually, this is quite an unusual tour for us because we don't go down south much, but we're, we're traveling all the way through the south, you know, through uh, New Orleans, uh, Louisiana, Texas. We're going to New Mexico. We're going to Vegas. We're going out to uh, the West Coast, and then we'll start making our way all the way up the west coast so it'll be about eight thousand miles all told by road and then in the in september this year we'll do the uh the east coast and we will do the midwest and uh and all points westward from that you know uh, so we, we, we hope to cover really this year the entire united states so if anybody wants to find out a little bit more about wishbone ash and andy powell they can go to your website right tell us about your website real website quick. is wishboneash.com and you can go to the wishbone ash facebook site which is about fifty thousand people members friends I and mean, you can find out anything that your heart desires about this band you will be able to find it on either the website or facebook super that's great we're just about out of time folks i want to thank my special guest for the evening andy powell legend Legendary guitarist, songwriter, musician from the Notorious Band from Britain back in the day, and still going strong, Wishbone Ash. Andy, thank you very much. Hey, listeners, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Be sure and tune in every Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. Tell your friends. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfStreamMotorsports.com. Like us on Facebook, Wishbone Ash. We'll be performing at Ringside Cafe in downtown St. Petersburg this weekend. I want to see everybody there. In the meantime, everybody, stay safe, drive carefully, love your family, and we will see you at some of the concerts. Take care, everybody. I don't mean to be telling tales out of school, but there's a fella in there who'll pay you $10 if you sing into his can. Downtown Dave. I'm not here to make a record, you dumb cracker. They broadcast me out on the radio. WTAN, Clearwater, Tampa Bay. WDCF Dade City, Tampa Bay. WZHR Zephyr Hills, Tampa Bay. Listen. You dumb cracker. 